And then I'd like to read our text together this morning. Stand with me if you would, please. Let's read this text together in unison. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Please join me in prayer. Our Father, we come before Your Word this morning, and we give thanks to You, even as we came here this morning, we could look up into the heavens and see that they declare Your glory in Your handiwork. Day after day, Your revelation is communicated. Your knowledge is known night after night. And everywhere in the world, that revelation is heard. The revelation of Your glory, Your existence, Your power. And as we see even the sun rise this morning, we know that it is a message, a message that you are, that you are powerful and you are infinitely wise. But Father, there is nothing that surpasses the revelation of your word. It is perfect, reviving the soul. It is sure, making wise the simple. Your word is right and it rejoices our hearts. Your word is pure, it enlightens our eyes, it is clean. It endures forever. They are true and altogether righteous. So, Father, let us desire Your Word more than gold, more than fine gold, more than the sweet taste of honey. Let us be warned by Your Word. Let us be taught by Your Word. Let us be rewarded by Your Word. Father, we ask that You would expose the errors, the sins in our lives that we cannot see, that You would expose us by by Your Word, that You would keep us back from sin by Your Word, that You would not let sin have dominion over us through the work of Your Word, that we would be blameless because the effect of Your Word has been to purify us. And let it so work in our hearts that the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in Your sight as we look to Christ, our Rock and our Redeemer. Father, may we, this morning as we study this text, have a very, very high view of Your Word and put it to a place of preeminence in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for His glory. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last Sunday we studied verses 10 through 17 in this particular text. As you remember, um, I didn't know if you thought I'd forgotten what we talked about last week, but I want to return to this text. It's impossible for us to work through this text and not feel the need to realize as fully as the Lord would enable us to the sweetness and the powerful 
nature and doctrine of the Scriptures. So this morning, we're going to have a lesson in theology, the theology of Scripture. We learned the main point last week as we looked at this text, as we were drawn to verse 14, Paul says, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. As believers, we have learned much from God's Word, and we have been convinced through the influence of God's Word concerning what is true. That's the nature of what it means to come to Christ. The Word convinces us of certain things. And so, last week we looked at three helpful principles for not falling away from the faith, persevering in the truth. The first thing we looked at last week was resetting our expectations of the godly life. We looked at verses 10-13, through 13, how Paul sort of outlines his own journey of life and he calls the believer to expect persecution, but know that God will deliver him. We also were called by the Apostle Paul to remember godly teachers. He says, you know the ones who you learned this truth from. And when we think of those whom God has placed in our lives to teach us and mentor us and sacrificially love us, it, it draws us to remain faithful in the truth. And the last element that Paul gave to us that we looked at last week was remaining in the Word of God. Verses 15-17 through 17 are a focus on the power of God's Word in the life of the believer. There's nothing like the Scriptures that will keep a believer growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Keep them faithful to the truth. It's a powerful, powerful revelation of God. And so this morning, I want to kind of double back with our text and focus simply on the last element of that text and give some theological weight to this section that it deserves. It's, it's so important that we look at verses 15 through 17 and really see what Paul is teaching us about the nature of Scripture. And so the main idea for this morning really focuses on that last point. Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed by giving Scripture the preeminent place in your life that it deserves and demands. Give Scripture the preeminent place in your life that it deserves and demands. Do we? Do you? Are you satisfied with the place that Scripture has in your life? Well, how do we know well, maybe make a mental comparison of your life to the man that you see described in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Does it take his advice from the ungodly? He doesn't, he doesn't live under the influence of sinners. He doesn't join in the philosophies of the wicked, but his delight is where? In the law of the Lord. And because his delight is in the law of the Lord, he meditates on the Word day and night. And as a result of that delight and that constant influence in his heart and life, his life is like a tree that is soaking up the life of God. And so his life becomes fruitful for Christ. Or Deuteronomy 6, 6-9, the 
the family that's described there that takes the commands of God and lives with them and puts them up on the walls of their home and talks of them when they go about their day and when they rise up and when they lay down. Deuteronomy 6, 6-9. through And so when you think about what place the Word of God actually deserves and demands in our lives, I think all of us could look at our lives and say, well, I fall short. We all have a lot of room to grow, don't we? So the question that we should ask ourselves as we come to this, back to these three verses this week, is to say, why should I give the Scriptures such a preeminent place in my life? Why? You ever kind of step back and look at the Christian life from a distance and say, why do we give so much, or why should we give so much to the Word of God as give our time to it, our mind to it, our life to it. It demands to be the ruling presence and dominant force in our lives. The Word of God does. Why? Well, there's three reasons I want to look at today from this text that will help us to know why and maybe move our hearts spiritually to truly embrace the Scriptures as the preeminent place. Number one, the inherent ability of God's Word. And you're going to hear kind of a somewhat of a review from last week, but I've worded things differently and I want to go deeper in each of these sections. Otherwise, we would have had a, a two-hour sermon last week. So, here it is. Number one, the inherent ability of Scripture. Verses 14 and 15. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Another word, another title for Scripture. And here's what I want to focus on, which are able, these sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The sacred writings, the Scripture is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Let me emphasize the importance of this, this ability that the Scripture has by explaining and comparing two kinds of revelation that God has provided to us as His image bearers. When you think of kinds of revelation that God has given to us, what comes to your mind? Well, the, the main categories of revelation are, we could call it natural or general revelation, and then special revelation. What are those? Well, turn with me for a few moments to Romans chapter 1. First, I want to look at what is natural revelation or general revelation. Romans chapter 1, look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. It is very important to realize that nature is revelation from God. That's what this text teaches. You look at nature, creation all around us, the Lake Michigan, the, the, the grassy plains that are just a little bit over where people are having cows. I mean, all of it, the animals, the sky, the trees, the, the rivers, all the things we enjoy. This all says something about God. Like we prayed through this morning, the Bible says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day after day, there's a message that is going forth. Their speech pours forth. In fact, there is no language where their speech is not heard, Psalm 19 says. Every place on the planet earth has been given a gift, and it's called natural revelation. And what does it tell us? What does it tell us? Look what it says. Verse 20. It's in God's invisible attributes, namely, specifically, His eternal power. So the eternality of God is revealed through revelation. How do you know that it does that? Well, revelation or the creation means that there must be a creator. And that creator who created all things must be eternal because he's the uncreated creator. And that he is powerful. You look at the skies, the stars, the planets, the the mountains, the rivers, all these things that are humanly unexplainable, and you say, someone infinitely powerful must have created this. Eternal power, divine nature, He is God indeed. And those things about God, those attributes of God, it says are what? Clearly perceived. They're clearly perceived. Look what it says in verse 19. These things that can be known about God through nature are actually what? Are they confusing? No, what does it say? They are plain. They're made plain. Because God has shown it to them. God has guaranteed that through His creation, His divine attributes of eternality and power are plain through creation. Isn't that something to think about? God has made it so. Now, is that the only form of natural revelation? Creation? No, there's something else that God has given to us to reveal Himself. Look at Romans chapter 2. Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show... That the work of the law is what? Written on their hearts. Now, who wrote it on their hearts? God did. That's part of natural revelation. General revelation built into your very creation is a reflection of the law of God. That is guaranteed for every human being. God has placed it there. And so what happens? They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences bear witness to that law. 
and their conflicting thoughts, accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. In fact, the conscience within man is such an indisputable witness to the presence and character of God that God will call the person's conscience to witness against them on the day of judgment. Isn't that something? So God has given within every human being a written law, not on paper, but on their hearts, so that they have an inherent knowledge of morality, God's own law, God's own character. Those are the two forms of general or natural revelation. Every human being has them. They reveal God's existence. They reveal God's attributes partially. They reveal God's law partially. They reveal human sinfulness partially. You notice even the conscience there in verse 15, it says this, this conscience bears witness to the law of God that's been written on the human heart and it, and it either accuses or excuses the person's actions. It says, yes, that's good. No, something's wrong with that one. Now, every human being has a, a choice as to what they're going to do with the revelation from nature, from creation, and from conscience. And it says that choice in Romans chapter 1. And very often, what do men do with that truth revealed, both in conscience and creation? They suppress it, right? Why? Because they would rather worship, just like Adam and Eve, they would rather worship the creature rather than the Creator. So general revelation gives us as human beings enough knowledge to hold us accountable for our responses to that revelation and to condemn us for our idolatry and sin. God has left no one without enough knowledge for them to turn to Him and ask for more revelation. They can either suppress the truth they're given or receive it and seek to worship God. Isn't that something? We have enough information. In fact, it's interesting. Psalm 19 says that as the sun makes its course, that nothing is hidden from its what? It's heat. Now notice that for a moment. You think, well, a blind person can't see the sun and see creation. Well, they certainly have the conscience within, but guess what they can do? They can feel the heat of the sun. There are things that are deep, <laughs> you know, the people that are, that are far away from being able to see what God has revealed, but they can, they can feel its heat. God has made His words known in general revelation, His nature. But only, here's, and here's the value of Scripture above all, only special revelation, that's the Scriptures, can lead us to a knowledge of salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at special revelation for a moment. Only special revelation can lead us to a knowledge of salvation in Jesus Christ. General revelation can't do that. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. What is special revelation? What's included there in special revelation? Hebrews 
Hebrews chapter 1 is a good place to go. Hebrews 1, verse 1, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Alright, so what special revelation? First, in there, in that verse, verse 1, you see that God spoke variously. In time gone by, He spoke to the fathers of particularly the nation of Israel, through prophets. So God has spoken dreams, visions, just like you read about it all through the, the words of Scripture. That's special revelation. When God speaks words in human language, that's special revelation. And verse 2, in these last days, most recently, how has He spoken to us in a special way? Through the Son, He sent the incarnate Christ. Right, The Son of God became man, lived among us. That was God in human flesh, and He spoke. Right? He spoke truth. Hebrews 1 and verse 2. And God, having spoken His word through the days of the fathers and the prophets, and the Son has now completed special revelation to His people and preserved that word for us in what? The Old and New Testaments. God speaks through Scripture. Jesus said this. Again, I refer to John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. You search the Scriptures, Jesus says, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. The Son, the words of the Son, the person of the Son has been specially communicated in the Scriptures. Jesus said it Himself. Second Peter chapter 2 or it's 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 19 through 21 Peter writes, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. The prophetic word. The prophetic word of God right here. More fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's talking about the Scripture. This is the unique revelation of God whereby the Spirit spoke His words, carried along these men, delivered to them, through them, the very Word of God, the prophecy of Scripture. The sacred writings are the word that Paul uses here in this text to refer to the Scriptures. Sacred writings, you know this from last week, was used by Greek-speaking Jews to refer to the Old Testament Scriptures specifically. The sacred writings, the Scriptures here, as Paul describes them, have an inherent ability. They are able. They have a strength. They have a power. They have a a capability that general or natural revelation does not have. 
It is the power to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Think about the importance of that. The difference between natural revelation and special revelation. Your conscience witnesses to you God's moral law. And that can accuse you of sin. That's that's helpful. That's, That's important. Creation can reveal to you the eternal power and divine nature of Yahweh and even give you a sense of His just wrath against those who violate the law that He has written on their hearts and suppress their consciences. But neither creation nor conscience can reveal to you how you may escape the wrath of God and enjoy the mercy of God. They can't do it. It falls short. Neither creation nor conscience can reveal to you the truth that because God is merciful, gracious, loving, good, and kind, that He sent the eternal Son to become the God-man for us in our salvation. Natural revelation won't tell you that. The Son humbly took on human nature and our situation. You don't see that in natural revelation. The Son lived a perfect life as a substitute, as a substitute for us. The Son died an atoning death as our substitute, that He rose from the dead, that He intercedes and reigns, that, that He will return in power and glory to reign and retribute and reward. You can't get that from looking at creation. Only special revelation in the Scriptures can lead you to that wisdom. Only special revelation can reveal to you that you have no inherent ability or goodness to appease God's righteous and ju- righteousness and justice and measure up to the law of, of goodness. That, natural revelation doesn't tell you that. Only special revelation can reveal to you that Christ alone can do that for you, that can save you if you will receive Him and ask and, and as his, He has revealed Himself and rest in His perfect and powerful person and work. Only special revelation reveals to you the promises of God. Think about that. That He has made to you who turn from sin and trust in Christ. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, it's God's divine power that has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And how has He granted to us that? All the things. How? Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Through that knowledge, He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that we can escape the corruption of the world and become partakers of divine nature. That is only accomplished by special revelation, the sacred writings, the Scriptures. Think about it. Only special revelation has the powerful, inherent ability to give you wisdom that will lead you from spiritual death to spiritual life. Sinfulness to righteousness. Hell to heaven. The cursed earth to a new earth. Fallen nature to a new nature. False religion to true religion. Law to grace. Separation from God to fellowship with God. Satan to, and self to, to Christ alone. Only this, only this Bible, only special revelation can do that. Do you believe that's true? There's a lot of people that, that believe that they can 
get all the religion they need from just being out in nature or following their own thoughts. Impossible. Only special revelation can bring us to salvation, to Christ. So, what kind of impact ought that to have on us? What difference does that make? Since that is the amazing power of the Word, what ought our response be to the Word? Only this can make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ. This is a lifeline. This, this, is, the, this is the pathway whereby we know Christ and have God eternally. So then I must value Scripture above all. Listen to what God says, or what David says in the Word of God. Psalm 119, 174. I long for your salvation, O Lord. Your law is my delight. As we'll read later, God says He holds His name and His Word above all. So value Scripture above all. Do you? Value Scripture. Know Scripture above all. Know it above all. There's lots of things that we can know a lot about. But is it your desire to know Scripture far beyond your knowledge of anything else? I mean, if it's, the, if it's the only way that we can be made wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, it's the only way that we can discover God in this life fully, then know it above all. Psalm 119, 9-11, How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And of course, as you seek to know it, really what you're doing is seeking to know Christ. Luke 24, verse 27 and 44, we've been through this text several times in the last few months. Jesus said it's, it's the law and the prophets and the Psalms that all point to Him, give us knowledge of Him. Value Scripture above all. Know Scripture above all. Teach Scripture Above all, since the Scriptures alone have this inherent ability and power to give men and women and boys and girls a wisdom that leads them to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, then this is what we need to be teaching to one another and our families and our neighbors and our co-workers and our community and our world. Is there anything, is there any subject more important to communicate to one another than the Bible? Truly not. And to communicate not our words, but these words. Not the world's words, but God's words. This is the word that will lead to salvation when it's accompanied with spirit and power and full conviction. Listen, 1 Thessalonians 1, 5-10. Our gospel, there's the word, came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and full conviction. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the Word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn from God to sir, turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. How did that happen? How did that happen in the life of the Thessalonian people? When you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. Let me ask you a question. I love that phrase there in in verses 9 and 10. What happened to the Thessalonian people when they received the Word of God? They turned to God From idols to serve the living and true God. Is there anybody that that is your prayer for? God, please turn their hearts away from loving worthlessness. From from serving idols. I want them to serve the living and true God and to wait for your return. To know you. To delight in you. Is that your own prayer for your own heart? What causes such a thing to happen? The Word of God does. It is able to make people wise, sinners just like you and me. Make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the inherent ability and power of the Word. Therefore, teach it, speak it, and watch it work in those who believe. Continue in what you've learned and firmly believed by giving Scripture the preeminent place in your life that it demands and deserves. Secondly, this morning, why should we give it that place? Number two, the divine source of Scripture. Because of the divine source of Scripture. 16 in the first part of this verse. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That's... That's one of the most amazing phrases in all of Scripture. Breathed out by God. Literally, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's one word, God-breathed. So what is Scripture, first of all? This is the New Testament term, Scripture. It's a New Testament term that refers to the written Word of God itself. So when you hear the Bible call its own name, it doesn't say Bible, right? It says Scripture. That's what I am. I'm Scripture, the Bible would say. And what writings are then included under that designation? Well, Jesus referred to the entirety of the Old Testament as Moses and all the prophets. He referred to them that way in Luke 24-27. Or as... He referred to the entirety of the Old Testament as the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. That's a common designation for the entire Old Testament. He referred to them that way in Luke 24, 44. And in those verses, he called them Scripture. So take Jesus' word for it. We know all of the Old Testament is Scripture. Jesus said so. What about the New Testament? Well, Peter called the apostolic writings and specifically the gospel accounts of Christ's life and words, he called those Scripture in 2 Peter 1, 
Wow. Okay. Peter called the writings of Paul Scripture in 2 Peter 3.16. In 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul called the writings of Luke, who was an apostolic associate, not an apostle himself, he called his writings Scripture as he recorded Jesus quoting and explaining from the Old Testament. So, what's the point of these references? Well, we look at the internal evidence of Scripture and we can, from these few examples, be confident that both the Old Testament and the New Testament are considered Scripture. Whether the books were penned by Moses or David or a prophet or an apostle or an apostolic associate like Luke or Mark, these books of the Old Testament and New Testament are rightly called Scripture. That's important to know that. All Scripture. Now, how did Scripture come to be? Letter B in your outline. The question is, is, were the Scriptures the product of man or God? And boy, this, this question comes up awful lot when you witness the people, doesn't it? Well, I don't really pay much attention to that book. It's written by a bunch of power-hungry, greedy men who are trying to get their way with people. Have you heard, have you heard people say that? a common one. Even religious people, I've heard say that. Well, what does Paul tell us? Paul declares here in one word both the source and the nature of Scripture. And it's, and it's the only time this word appears in the New Testament. This is just a priceless word breathed out by God. It's one word in the original language. God breathed. God breathed. Paul says that the sacred writings, which are here called Scripture, same thing, came to be by the very breath of God. The very breath of God. When you think of the breath of God, what comes to your mind? Well, certainly His Spirit. You think about when he, Genesis 2.7, He breathed into the nostrils of man His own breath. And that man became a living being. This is the creative power of God at work here. This means that from the very first letter that Moses or David or Isaiah or Paul or James or Luke or whoever in the Bible authors, the moment they began to dictate or write on their original document to the very last letter of that document, God's Spirit in initiated it, delivered it, superintended it, guided it, carried it, completed it. God Himself breathed the Scripture. The source of Scripture is the Spirit of God and the breath of God. Nothing else in all of Scripture has that description. God breathed. You won't find it. Nothing else has that description. Nothing else in the universe is so designated. The Scripture comes from God's own breath and it is His speech. It's His voice. It's His words. The Bible, the Scripture is the voice of God. This, this book is the reason, this book that we hold in our hands, that we each have probably at least three of. This book is the reason why we can confidently say today that God is still speaking. This is the voice of God. So what did the human authors have to do with the production of Scripture then? Were they programmed robots? Were they men in a trance of some kind? No. They were, let's call them this, they were human instruments. Human instruments 
through which God perfectly breathes His very own words. That's how you need to think of inspiration. Like, here's an example. Like, like a musician today may play the same song through a variety of instruments so that there is some variation in the sound and the style of the music, but the same song is played, so God used a variety of human instruments through which to breathe out His very own words. God chose to preserve and use the unique style and character of each human instrument in the production of Scripture, but God Himself was the perfect musician that composed and performed each word of Scripture, and through His human instruments, He breathed out exactly the words and sentences and paragraphs and thoughts and messages He desired without a single error. That's how we see this. And the exact mechanism of that, we're not told. But that's what we are told. That the Scripture is the breath of God, and each human author is an instrument, and God breathed through them. And what resulted was the voice of God. Perfect voice of God. The Word of God. So how much of the Scripture is then God breathed? His very own perfect creation. How much of it? Well, Paul says so clearly, all of it. All of it. Each single stroke of each letter of each word of the original documents that were penned by each one of God's chosen human instruments was God-breathed. In fact, Jesus referred to the smallest stroke of a letter and said that it will be fulfilled. We'll look at that verse in just a bit. It's not just the meaning that is God-breathed. No, don't go there. It's not just the meaning. It's not... That God breathes and inspires you when you read the Bible, when you feel something wonderful happening as you're reading the Bible. That's not inspiration. No, this is this, these words and letters that God breathed into the very original document is the very breath of God. It's, it's each letter, it's each stroke, all of it. We're, all the strokes and words together were God breathed, and each part and every part of Scripture was God breathed. Look back with me at 2 Peter chapter 1. There's two other texts that are, are, robust, are robust in their, in their explanation and defense of, of the inspiration of Scripture. The, the other one is 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 16, and then this text, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. So these, these are your big three when you want to understand the nature of Scripture, go to 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 16, and 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. I want to at least read this text in 2 Peter and give some sense of this before we move on. It's such a precious text. Verse 16 For we did not follow, Peter is speaking. Imagine this, before I read this, imagine Peter sitting around a table with those who are casting aspersion on their ministry. And they're blaming the apostles for writing spurious documents, creating myths, just trying to get people under their control for their own benefit. 
And he says to them, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't make stuff up when we wrote down the account of his life and words. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We just wrote down what we saw and heard. Just like the Apostle John said, what we have seen, what we have heard, what we've handled, the word of life, we make it known to you. For when, we, when, when He received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, which is a short way of talking about the transfiguration, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And now he's talking about how they got all that they heard and experienced down on paper for us to read. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. It's more sure, it's more reliable than even a vision that you may have had, Peter is saying to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, you focus on Scripture until Christ returns. And don't let anything distract you from Scripture. And why should I give it that much weight? Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, the Spirit of God did not leave it to the apostles and their own minds to remember what they heard and saw and get it down accurately on paper. The Holy Spirit brought to their remembrance everything that Jesus said and did. He, he brought it to them and interpreted it for him, them so that they could get it down on the paper just the way he wanted it. That's what he says in verse 21 too. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. You know, these apostles, you ever wonder if they woke up one day and were like, today I'm going to write scripture. No, that's, that's not the way it was. We don't know even if they knew they were writing scripture at the time they were writing it. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But what did happen? Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And and you've heard me say this, but that word carried along is such a picturesque word, fitting for the Apostle Peter who knew what it was like to be out in the middle of the sea and not able to row to shore because the sea had full control of the ship. That's that word. That word is used in ancient literature of a ship that's totally mastered by the wind and the waves and the sea. And that's what Peter says. That's how we were under the influence of the Holy Spirit. We were carried along by Him without a will of our own so that what was written down was His words and not ours. That's inspiration. That's God-breathed Scripture. Now, since all of Scripture is God-breathed, then what does that tell us about the nature of Scripture and our responses to it? One, all of it is without error, right? How do we know that? Because God cannot lie. His word is necessarily without error and absolutely true in all that it says. If it's his breath, he can't lie. His word is truth. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. What? Your word is truth. Jesus said that to his Father. Psalm 12 and verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. 
like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. The Word of God is perfectly pure in its content. So what's our response? Believe it. Even when everyone else says something different. Remember what the Word says? Let God be true and what? Every man a liar. You ever have difficulty believing some things in the Word of God? Do, do you ever have a friend or someone online whisper, as it were, in your ear, that just can't be so? Who are you going to believe? When you're tempted to believe something else in contrast to the Word of God, we must believe God's Word. Why? Because it's God's breath. It is without lie, like He is. All of Scripture is infallible, secondly. What, what does that mean? Well, because God cannot fail, God can't make mistakes or be wrong in any of His acts or plans or purposes, it is impossible then for the Word of God to fail in anything that it says, anything it promises, anything it plans or purposes. And Jesus affirmed this. He said, do not think that I've come to fulfill the law, or do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That is an amazing statement. Jesus is saying, all of creation as we know it will sooner dissolve than the Word of God will fail to be fulfilled in all that it says. That's how infallible it is. Jesus said in John 10.35, the Scriptures cannot be broken. They won't be found to be an error. They won't fail to be demonstrated as true and powerful. So, what? What's our response to that? Rely on it. Count on the Word. Every time. Even when it seems like your life is unraveling and it seems pointless to keep trusting, rely on it. It will not fail. All of Scripture is without error. All of Scripture is infallible. All of Scripture is authoritative. Because God is sovereign over all of creation. His Word bears His own authority in all that it says. That's true of any sovereign. Even small sovereigns over kingdoms of this earth. Their Word bears their own authority. So does the Scriptures. It bears the authority of God. I alluded to this verse earlier. Psalm 138, 1 and 2. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Wow. Above all things. God exalts His word. So what's our response to such authority in this word? Submit to it. In everything. You know, there's so many things that we are so resistant to submit to in the Word of God when it comes down to it. Submit to it. Even when it goes against everything you feel. You know, as human beings, we're so bent on living according to our feelings, don't we? And then when the Scripture says, whoa, God says no. We want to follow our feelings and we don't desire to submit ourselves to God's Word. But 
All of Scripture is authoritative and about everything in our lives. And a fourth point of that implication, all of Scripture is sufficient. It's sufficient. It's all we need to hear from God. Because God is infinitely wise and perfectly understanding and all that we need, all that we need for a godly life in Christ, He has provided for us all the wisdom that we need in the, in the Scriptures. That's why 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says what it says. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things through the knowledge of Him who called us. Through these precious promises. There, there they are, right in Scripture. Through Scripture, we have all we need. We're going to look at this again at the very end of our time here because the Scriptures alone can make the man of God complete and equipped for every good work. Now that's a sufficient word then. If the Scripture provides for us everything we need to be who God wants us to be and do all that God has planned for us to do, then it's sufficient. So what's our response to that? Well, devote yourself to the Word of God. Even when in our culture it is so easy to be distracted by worldly thinking and revelation outside of the Bible. I wonder if we realize this, and we've talked about this before, but it is so important to notice that every post-Christian religious group, or we might call them cults, took their first step away from true doctrine by accepting revelation from God outside of the Scriptures. Do you realize that? That's the way it is, without fail. And so that's why we must have this belief that all Scripture is sufficient. This is enough. And it's, it's wise this way. Oh, there's so much that would distract us from the Scriptures. But if it's sufficient, we're to be devoted to it. Now, finally this morning, since the Scriptures have the inherent power to give a person wisdom that will lead them to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, since the Scriptures God breathed, then what will happen to the man or woman, boy or girl, who gives themselves to the Scriptures? Day after day. What kind of effect will it have on me and you? Well, that's what verse 16b and 17 describe for us. It's profitable then for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So number three, the practical effect of Scripture. Paul says it's profitable. In other words, the Word of God will have a beneficial, a great beneficial effect on those who believe it, rely on it, submit to it, and devote themselves to it. The Word will have a massive positive impact on their heart and life for the glory of God, for their, for their ultimate good. When God in grace accompanies His Word with His Spirit, to His people, it will work for them a great advantage, a great progress. And what will, that, what will that be, that effect? Well, first, letter A, it will change your thinking to reflect the mind of Christ. That's what's bring, being brought out in the first two words, teaching and reproof. This is The Scripture changes our minds, doesn't it? Teaching, the Word instructs you in truth. 
and godly knowledge. It instructs your beliefs and desires and convictions. You see, we don't come into this world programmed accurately, do we? Do we? No. In fact, we all come into this world thinking correctly about almost nothing. That's the reality of it. We, we have wrong thoughts about God and man and salvation and origin and purpose and eternity and identity. And if we try to go and form all of that on our own, it's going to go really badly. And we know that. And we've experienced that. And we've seen it. And we don't immediately start thinking rightly about everything the moment we're born again either, do we? Wow. We're just at the beginning. We're just saying mama, right? Dada. You know, we're, just, we're just reading the words. For God so loved the world. Yes, God loves me. But there's so much to change in our thinking about everything. The Holy Spirit in our hearts teaches us the truth verse by verse and book by book through the course of our entire lives. We're born into complete spiritual darkness, but the unfolding of God's Word give us, gives us light. And it imparts wisdom to the simple. Psalm 119, 130. And throughout that process of teaching, the Spirit will then cause the Word to bring to our hearts reproof also. So it teaches us what is true about everything. But it, but it then must reprove us because we... We come to it with all the wrong thoughts. You know, sometimes we can step back and think, why do we get so upset when our thoughts are confronted as wrong? Why does that bother us so much? We should expect it constantly. That's sanctification, isn't it? We get reproof. That means the Word will expose you where your knowledge and beliefs and desires and convictions are in error. And then it graciously exhorts you to turn and let go of what is false and ungodly in your thinking and embrace what is true and holy. If there's one prayer we should, we should pray constantly is God change me. Right? God change my mind. Help me to see where I'm thinking wrongly Show me what, I, what I'm thinking about you that's in error. Show me about what I'm thinking about myself and the Christian life and so on. Isn't that the work of the Word? The Word will powerfully and painfully remove from our minds error, worldly thinking, selfish desire, and so on, and replace those thoughts with the mind of Christ. That's the work of the Word and its author upon the believer's mind. Think about it. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Piercing, piercing. The Word of God is piercing to the, to the very core of your being, your thinking. In fact, it will expose thoughts you didn't even know you had, right? To the very core of your being, the, the, the vision of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And it, the, this phrase, it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. In other words, the Word of God knows you better than you know yourself. It does, doesn't it? And there's nothing like trials to bring that all to the surface. 
Trials in the Word. Those are, that's God's rod and staff, as it were, to bring us into conformity with His mind. No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him with whom we must give account. But then it, it, it renews us, doesn't it? T- Titus 3.5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and what? Renewal. There's renewal that begins at the moment of rebirth. The renewal of the Holy Spirit. Your mind is going to be constantly being renewed. I know it's hard. It's hard for all of us to let go of thoughts that we've been taught from, maybe even taught incorrectly, right, from day one. And we have to say, what? That's not what the Bible says. But, ah, Spirit, renew my mind. Give me your thoughts. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. That's, that's the work of the Word, teaching and reproof. Renewal of the mind so that you can discern through testing what is the will of God. Ha. Huh. And what is good and acceptable and perfect. Ephesians 4, 20-24, but that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be what? Renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, Colossians 3, 9 through 10, don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So then in verse 16, it rightly says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the point of the word. It renews our minds, changes our thinking about everything. We should expect that. We should desire it. We should pray for it. And as a result of changing our thinking to reflect the mind of Christ, it will then, the word, letter B, will change our living to reflect the life of Christ. And that's the point of the second two words, for correction, for training in righteousness. Correction, the word will set you right, particularly with reference to your conduct, your behavior, your words, your attitudes, your actions. The Word of God will show you where you're sinning. It will call you to repentance. It will reveal to you how to follow Christ and graciously supply gospel hope and strength for doing so. Think of how, think of how Galatians 5, 16-26 is set up. Paul's talking to people who are justified by grace alone through faith in Christ. And he says, now, walk by the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. How do you walk with the Spirit? And is it by letting the Word of God dwell in you richly? If you compare Ephesians 5.18 and Colossians 3.16 as, as parallel text, you will see that's, that's what it is. Letting the Word so richly dwell in you that the Spirit speaks to you His very words. And you submit yourself to them so that you don't, so that you learn not to act out with the works of the flesh, Ephesians 5 again, but by the what? Fruit of the Spirit. Or again, 2 Peter 1, 3-11, what's the effect of having this sufficient Word filled with His power and His promises? Well, 
we make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. And there's a whole list of spiritual virtues that flows out of having the sufficient word work on our lives. It's correction and then training in righteousness. The word provides and provides discipline and structures and principles and guidelines for your life so that godliness and Christ-likeness will be produced. That word training there, it's interesting. That word training is the same word that is used in Ephesians 6, 4 to refer to how, to Christian, to refer to how Christian parents are to bring up their children. Bring up your children in the what? Discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's the same word. We're like children. God's our Father. And He uses His Word to discipline us, to train us, to, to bring us up. We're the children of God. Like Deuteronomy 8, 3 through 5 says. It says in verse 5 in particular, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. How does He do that? Through His Word. Or Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, whom the Lord loves, he what? He disciplines, he trains. Same word. Every son whom he receives. Now, what will be the result or the outcome for the child of God who is being taught and reproved and corrected and trained like that? Well, verse 17, the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Man of God, we talked about this last week, the believer, the person of God, the child of God, even the minister of God with His Word will be complete. The Word makes, this is a great word, the Word makes you proficient. It's not that you have everything you need to know right now in your mind for everything that's going to happen to you, but when you bring the Word to yourself, it then makes you proficient. You have what you need right there. You'll be proficient, you'll be capable, you'll be adequately fitted. The Word of God gives you a special aptitude for life that God calls you to. Every, for, for what then? It says every good work. Everything that God has planned for you to do from before the foundation of the world. Look down the future even now. What is God calling you to do in everyday life? What are the good works that God has planned for you? You're not sure what, they're all, what, what they all are going to be yet. You know some of them just because of what you're doing right now and the relationships that God has brought about for you. Well, the Word of God will equip you and make you proficient to do those good works for His glory. We're His workmanship. He has good works planned for us. Colossians 1 9 and 10, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Well, what if, if, if the Word of God fills us with the knowledge of His will and we have spiritual wisdom and understanding, then we'll be able to, verse 10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And we just looked at that in 2 Timothy 2.21. We want to be, by God's grace, vessels that are useful to the Master, ready for every good work. The Word makes us ready, prepares us, equips us, makes us capable. There's nothing that God would call you to that the Word of God cannot equip you for. Titus 3.1, remind them to be submissive to the rulers, to the authorities, 
to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Well, how is that possible? Well, the Word of God alone equips you for all of that. Having been equipped, an excellent word again. The Word has prepared you, fully furnished you, has completed you for whatever good work God has planned for you. Now think about that. What are the good works that God has for you right now? The Word having taught you and reproved you and corrected you and trained you in righteousness will complete you for what? What are the good works? Witnessing. The Word has what you need. Marriage in all of its conflicts, in all of its struggles, in all of its joys. The Word has what you need. Parenting, discipleship, counseling, counseling one another. In all of the struggles that we may face in counseling one another, the Word has all we need. Contending for the faith, the Word has it. Serving the body of Christ. Enduring through trials. That may be the good work God has for you. Living by faith. Walking in obedience. The Word will equip you for it all. Every good work that God calls you to do, you will find your complete preparation in the God-breathed Word. So, think about it this way. If you know that God has, by His sovereignty, placed a good work in front of you, and you're walking into it, and you're like, I'm not sure how to handle this. What should be your knee-jerk response? Let me go get the equipment that the Word provides. If you don't know where the Word of God equips you for something that you cannot avoid doing in God's providence, then find out. Bring the body of Christ around you. Find out how the Word equips you for the good work that God has planned for you. So what ought to be our response to this? To this practical effect of the Word? Well, when you are wrestling in your heart with doctrines that are challenging to you, submit your heart to the Word. When you're struggling with selfish motives that lay hidden behind your Christian service, let your heart be exposed and renewed by the Word. When you don't desire sometimes what God calls you to do, let the Word provide Spirit-empowered ambitions to your heart. When you're seeking to know the will of God about anything, anything, find God's will from the principles of His Word. When you're discouraged, overwhelmed with the growth in Christ-likeness, and what it requires. Look to Christ and the gospel promises He provides from His Word. When you're seeking to know how to overcome your own sin or the light, or sin in someone else's life, seek the wisdom of the Word. And certainly when you want to be equipped for faithfulness, let the Word of God completely prepare you. So again, I want to encourage you as we look at this glorious Word, Don't be distracted by the human opinions of a friend. Don't don't be influenced by the worldly advice of a co-worker about life situations and decisions. Don't let the empty philosophies of a New Age guru captivate your mind. Don't, Don't get quick answers from an internet search. Why do we do that? Don't take psychology from a Christian psychologist or selfish, culture-driven motivations. Look to the God-breathed Word to fill you, 
to be the dominating, ruling presence in your mind, in your heart, in your life. It has everything we need for life and godliness. It says it does. God says. And let's find it by His grace and that we may by His grace become imitators of Him as His beloved children. In closing this morning, I want to come back to our first question there. My brothers and sisters in Christ, does the Word of God have a preeminent place in your life? Think about that. Does it? Well, how do I know? Well, where, where, does, you, where does your mind turn to make decisions? When you have to make decisions in life, when you're seeking for answers, do you turn to the Word? Where do you turn to guide your ambitions for life and the future? Do you turn to the Word for that? Where do you turn to be reminded of who you are and who you want to become? Do you turn to the Word for that? Where do you turn to find out who God is? Where do you find your greatest delights? Where do you turn to resolve a conflict with your spouse or your parent or your child or your friend? Where do you turn when someone asks you for advice about important life matters? Where do you turn to show someone how they can become a child of God? I hope you'll think about these questions. If the Scripture is not your answer to these questions, then it does not have preeminence in your life. That's clear. And in such cases, may we pray like David, Psalm 119, 21 and 10, you rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Isn't that a prayer? For us to pray. And by God's grace, begin today to give the Scriptures the preeminent place in your life that it deserves and demands. It's the breath of God. And my dear friend, if you do not yet know that you've been rescued from the righteous wrath of God against your sin through faith in Jesus Christ, you have to understand that this Word is what makes you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. So I encourage you today, if you don't have that wisdom yet, to know how you can be saved and enjoy eternal life with Christ, then I don't want you to leave today until you find someone. You come and talk with me and I'll certainly share this with another brother or sister in Christ that you may need to talk to. And you can find out that wisdom. The Bible will open the Bible to you and show you how you can know God's mercy and grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It has that ability. Trust it. Let's stand together and we'll pray this morning. Father, we, we begin our prayer now with confession by saying that we do not give your word the preeminence that it demands and deserves. So we ask you, to forgive us, and we know that in Christ we are forgiven. But give us 
hearts to diligently turn to your word. Not to set our minds as critiques of your word, evaluators of your word, judges of your word. To think that we could ever look to something else and set on a secondary place your word. Thinking that it's just not quite what we need. Oh, Father, forgive us for such thoughts. That the word of God, that your breath would be insufficient, that something else would be better. Father, forgive us. You who created our very breath have given us your word, your voice, your speech. May we receive it as such and live with it as such. And may it change us. Father, so that we can live well equipped doing the works you've planned for us to do for your glory. And I pray that if someone here does not know the wisdom of salvation through the word, that they would come to it humbly this morning and receive what you have said and be saved. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.